Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. Hi, I'm David Cunnington. And I'm Chris Pearce. So in this episode, we're going to talk about sleep in autism. Many of our families who have genetic epilepsy, children also have a presentation of autism or a comorbidity of autism and sleep is often very challenging. So I had the chance to interview Associate Professor Amanda Richdale uh, from La Trobe University uh, in Melbourne, Australia. And Amanda does a lot of research into autism, particularly looking at sleep. Thanks very much for helping us out, Amanda, and talking about sleep in kids with autism. What actually is autism? Autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder with probably uh, multiple causes that lead to a final end diagnosis of autism. Uh, spectrum disorder, as it's now called in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in the fifth edition, which is the Bible that psychologists and psychiatrists in Australia would use. It is typically diagnosed in children. Some people don't get diagnosed until well into adulthood. They're not picked up. That's Sometimes people with severe intellectual disabilities, sometimes people who are in other ways very able. It has two core features. One's to do with social communication difficulties and the other one's got to do with repetitive behaviours and interests and sensory, sensory interests and sticking to routines, all of those sorts of things. It's a, thought to be a lifelong disorder, though many people do very well. A lot of people also require support throughout their lifetime. It can be associated with intellectual disability, but many people with autism have normal cognitive functioning, so uh-huh. they don't have an intellectual disability. And most or many people with autism will have at least one other co-diagnosis. So often anxiety, depression, often mental health problems, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, sleeping difficulties, gastrointestinal symptoms are among the most common comorbid conditions. Also epilepsy, which of course can affect sleep. In children, more commonly anxiety and ADHD. Sleep problems are a lifespan problem. Depression tends to develop in older children and through adolescence and into um, adults. And gastrointestinal problems are are quite common. Of the sleep problems that you see in kids and adolescents with autism, what type of sleep problems do they get? The most common ones are to do with insomnia symptoms. Mm-hmm. So the most common differentiating issue that we find in, in um, our sleep research is that if we were to take a group of children with autism and take another group of children, the children with autism take a long time to go to sleep. So sleep problems associated with sleep onset latency. They also commonly have shorter shorter total night sleep, poorer sleep efficiency, significant night waking too, but in some ways that can be different. So if you were to look at the absolute frequency of night waking, it might be similar to other children, but there are these children and sometimes adults, particularly with intellectual disability, who may wake up for quite extended periods during the night, get up, disturb the house, engage in disturbing, various disturbing behaviours. And that these could last, you know, for an hour or two. So that's very disturbing for families. And there are also a, another smaller subgroup of children who tend to wake up very early in the morning. So before 5am, um, most children would wake up after 6 as a group of early wakes, sun, yeah. sunrise wakers that wake up between 5 and 6. But these are children who may wake up at 3, 4, 4.30 in the morning and they're not going to go back to sleep. And what are some of the factors about autism and kids with autism that might lead to these sleep difficulties? Well, this is one of the things that people are still looking at. Uh Uh, So researchers are looking at 
genetic potential genetic causes. They're starting to look at genetic links. They've been looking at sleep from microstructure, which is not particularly my area because I'm essentially a psychologist. Yeah. But there have been some some REM, non-REM and uh, sleep microstructures differences reported in literature, but they tend to be small studies with small groups of children and tend not to necessarily be easily replicable yeah. but there is certainly some suggestion that there are maybe some differences in in this in PSG in terms of behaviors that might be associated with certainly challenging behaviors are very much associated so behaviors of third are associated with uh, sleep problems ADHD behaviors are associated with sleep problems so attention hyperactivity or inattention and hyperactivity anxiety and, and depression, so all the usual suspects that we actually see in uh, typical populations, but we're seeing these problems starting from a very young age. So there was a very interesting longitudinal study out of the UK by Humphreys and colleagues a couple of years ago, and they followed children from infancy. I can't remember exactly. It might have been below 12 months, so they wouldn't have had a diagnosis at that point, but they followed a large group of children through to 11 years of age, and they found that the children with autism their sleep was starting to look different from about age two, two and a half. And the two variables from memory that they looked at were sleep onset latency and total sleep. And they were, and they remained different from the non-autistic children in that study right through the age span that they were using. It's, it's something that starts early. In young children, it, it just seems to be associated perhaps with more severe symptoms of autism. Once children get a little bit older, it seems to be quite closely related with anxiety and we, we're very keen on looking at arousal mechanisms because there's evidence that arousal mechanisms might be different in people with autism and certainly in older adolescents and young adults we've found some nice relationships with arousal and pre-sleep arousal. And certainly in my work as an adult sleep physician when I'm working with adults with autism I'd sort of characterise the difficulties I have as difficulties with self-soothing so there's something about yes. sometimes the cognitive processes that just don't allow self-soothing. And then in yes. the sleep study stuff, physiologically, there looks like hyperarousal or more of that sympathetic nervous system drive. And I don't know how much yes. of that is inability to self-soothe that drives the hyperarousal or the hyperarousal that makes the self-soothing difficult. And it's hard to tease out? That's the big question, but certainly all of our data at the moment and has been for the last few years has been pointing in the direction of arousal mechanisms and some of the overseas data that's been coming in is also pointing at the issues of arousal mechanisms being involved. And in very young children, you know, some of the issue too seems to be self-soothing, but then it is in very young children anyway, so what's different about the children with autism? Are they predisposed to be more aroused and that leads to sleep problems? Or though in young children, there's also some suggestion that they're not picking up the environmental cues to set up good sleep routines. They're not understanding what's going on in their environment. They don't like environmental change. They're not attending. They're quite withdrawn inside of themselves, so to speak with some of the young children. Sleep is almost an interruption to routines. So you talked a bit about arousal mechanisms. You also recently published looking at circadian factors in adults. What did yes. you find with that work? We certainly found, which we 
isn't reported so much in children. We found a high proportion of the adults had circadian sleep-wake rhythm problems, but there wasn't a lot of evidence for melatonin um, problems, which I had always thought might be a problem, that there, there might be something like the melatonin rhythms. And colleague in the US, um, Beth Mallow, has looked, and her colleagues have looked at melatonin in, in children, and in their particular study, they didn't find any troubles either. Other people have earlier on found um, difficult differences in melatonin, but some of that could be accounted for by the way they've approached their uh, design. Uh -huh. And we, cert we certainly, I won't say we did it perfectly, but we did try and be as rigorous as we could, but it's quite difficult to do that, yeah. that kind of work and to, to get that kind of result. But very much delayed sleep-wake sleep rhythms but some people with advanced rhythms and a couple who also had significant mental health problems with um, non-24 hour or um, irregular sleep-wake rhythm. Now you see the you see a few children with delayed sleep phase, but we found that 44% of the adults have a circadian rhythm sleep disorder. We're actually hopeful that a paper will be published to show that that's actually potentially associated with one of the things that's associated with unemployment. This may happen. If we think about what happens to adults with autism, they're often um, underemployed or unemployed. Uh -huh. Their life has, it's not regulated, it's not routine. Yeah. So that the tendency for them to, to get out of phase with society, if they're not going out and doing things on a regular basis, they don't have routines, they're not employed and, and so on. Yeah. That requires obviously further investigation as to whether that's the reason, whether it's a, actually a social reason because they still have symptoms of insomnia that we see in, in the younger children. So they have the symptoms of insomnia, but on top of that, they have these sleep-wake rhythms. A, a proportion of them have these sleep-wake rhythms that are now somewhat out of phase with society, and, and, and that might be just an added social impost. Yeah, I reckon that's hard to tease out, because I, I see that in clinical practice as well, and how much is difficulty with arousal or not switching off and self-soothing. And also not a fixed arising time that's going to naturally make sleep onset later and then a rising time later. So how much is a primary yeah. circadian sort of piece and how much is more social and mediated by arousal? I think that's hard to know. And given that we don't see in the literature reported a high percentage of circadian problems in the younger children, but we see the insomnia type problems, but now in this adult population we're starting to see the circadian problems tends to lead one to think that there's a social there's a social cause behind the increase in circadian problems. If clinicians are working with either children or adults with autism on sleep problems, how might they modify what they do if they're working with people with autism as against working with others without autism? They need to take into account potential for the person's social communication difficulties. So with young children, working closely with parents and setting up bedtime routines and using communication systems that the children can understand. So we in the past, with, in research, and Margot may well have talked about this too, we set up a series of little pictures showing what the child had to do and what all the steps were with a little star chart with rewards. Now, mm -hmm. depending on the intellectual level of the child, whether the child's got a significant communication and intellectual disability or not, you, you may modify, again, how you do that. Yeah. So you have to look at the individual child, but you need some really good cues. You need to make sure that you're 
language you use is understandable and that they're not ambiguous. We need to take into account the person's anxieties. So we, we need to take an individual approach that takes into account the specific symptoms of the person themselves with autism. When we work with families, we need to look at what the family's goals are, what would be good for the what the family feels would be goals. So they may not want to cure or, or treat everything yeah. because they've often got a lot to deal with. So they might want to just deal with getting a child to bed and to sleep, sleep quickly so that they've got a quiet and peaceful night and that might be sufficient to provide them with a lot of stress relief. And if the child's going to sleep more quickly, the child is getting more sleep that night. It's an individualised approach that takes into account, in particular, the core features of autism. Thanks very much, Amanda. Okay. So what were your take-homes from that podcast, Dave? Yeah, as we talked about, autism can be a real challenge and make it difficult for carers. And so some really good tips in just understanding the mechanisms of why sleep might be challenging in autism, which in turn makes it a bit more logical about some of the things that uh, can be done, and demystifying sleep, if you like. Um, rather than feeling like it's something that's just something we you know can't approach or don't have a, a strategy for. Keep up to date with the latest information by subscribing to this podcast. You can also get regular updates through our social media at SCN2A Australia on Facebook or SCN2A on Twitter at SCN2A Australia. You could also email us at podcast at SCN2A Australia.org if you would like to be involved in our podcast or have a suggestion of someone you'd like us to interview. Thanks a lot. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 